If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19, there are some rich nuggets of truth for us this morning. We're in this uh, sermon series, Resetting Life's Compass. We are thinking together about uh, getting a course direction, uh, doing some course correction as necessary, and getting our lives organized uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning, we're thinking about investing wisely, that is, uh, all that we are, all that we possess, all that demands our attention and allegiance, uh, making sure that we're leveraging eternity uh, by every decision that we make. In just a few moments, I'm going to read that scripture and visit with you about that topic. But before I do that, I would like to invite us to a time of prayer. I invite you to just uh, take a breath and uh, be in God's presence. Close your eyes, meditate, uh, just receive God's presence. If there's uh, something uh, in your heart that's just hungering to know that quiet presence or maybe confess a particular burden or a sin or just visit with God about something or someone in these moments of silence and then I'll lead us in prayer. Loving God, in the book of Revelation, you tell us that there was silence in heaven for the space of a half an hour. And we acknowledge that our lives are too noisy, too busy, too fragmented, and it is good to be quiet in your presence, to know that you are God. So we invite you to heal that which is broken within our hearts, unite that which is divided, Give us the courage to respond to your Holy Spirit's prompting through song and prayer and spoken word and through scripture today. We ask God that as you give us that courage to be honest with ourselves and honest with you, that you would bless our lives and set us free. We confess our sin. We confess our need of you. We confess our failures and our brokenness. And we simply invite you to cleanse us, wash us out on the inside, and then renew us, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your word that never comes back to you void, but always accomplishes that which you please, uh, would penetrate our lives, not only individually, but as a church and as a people. And God, we ask today that you bless our people, those who are sick, those who are facing medical tests, those who are dealing with cancer treatments, those who are grieving, those who are in strained and broken relationships, those who are facing job difficulties and economic hardships, for those who are in special need today, would you, by your powerful spirit, bless and lift up. We pray for our uh, military personnel that you would keep them safe and bless them today all over the earth. We pray for the troubled spots of the earth, that there might be peace. We pray for refugees and the hungry and the homeless and those devastated by war crimes and by uh, human trafficking. We ask God that you bless us as a people to be generous with our eyes open to a world that needs your witness. We pray that today, as you speak to our hearts, you would teach us new ways to be obedient that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 
I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19, and I invite you to stand as we come to attention, as God's Word comes among us. As for those who in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. May God bless this very special word to our hearts. You may be seated. One of the things that it's important for us to understand at the very beginning this morning is that the Bible is not against money. Uh, The Bible is not against accumulation of possessions. Uh, In fact, The Bible talks about us enjoying God's blessings, uh, as we read just a moment ago. But what the Bible is concerned about, and I think what God is concerned about, is our lack of perspective when it comes to possessions, or when it comes to things, or when it comes to money. For example, uh, Bill Hybels in his book Simplify uh, talks about how we often use the things of the world uh, to to self-medicate us when we're going through a time of pain. He said, you know, when you're going through a rough patch in your life, you may choose to self-medicate through alcohol or other drugs uh, to try to numb the pain. Or you may self-medicate through excessive entertainment or uh, sexual promiscuity. Or you may self-medicate through uh, overeating. Or you may self-medicate by by spending and accumulating things. Some call it retail therapy, uh, but uh, that's probably just a euphemism. And so he gives us a lot to think about. And what happens if that pattern is continued and fed by a culture? We become a culture of acquisition. We become a culture of consuming to where consuming defines us. And I want to show you a quote by Brian McLaren in one of his books, and I want you to think about it. He says, we consume time and produce fatigue. We consume art and talent and produce entertainment and amusement. We consume work and leisure and produce paychecks and heart attacks. He was trying to get us to remember that, uh, to remember why we make money in the first place, why we work at jobs in the first place. We do not make money and work at jobs to numb ourselves. We do those things so that we might, as Scripture says, enjoy life. But as McLaren reminds us, if we're just a consumer, we're just gobbling that stuff up and it uses us and we're spent to where the work and the leisure produce paychecks and heart attacks rather than fulfillment and purpose. It might interest you to know that this was not a new problem with our generation. In fact, that problem existed in Bible days. It's interesting to note that almost at the beginning of the Christian faith in the first century of the New Testament church, people of all socioeconomic classes began to come to Christ in faith. It wasn't just the poor. There were wealthy people. You remember uh, Joseph of Arimathea who loaned his grave to Jesus when Jesus was 
crucified. He was a man of some financial means probably. You remember uh, Lydia, the seller of purple in Acts 16? She was probably a woman of some financial means. So people of some considerable wealth or possessions were coming into the church. And so early on, the church had to be concerned not only with the poor, the church had to be concerned with the wealthy too. So that the church had, through the New Testament, had to speak a prophetic word to the poor and for the poor, not only speaking a prophetic word for the poor, but speaking a pastoral word to the wealthy. Let me say it another way. The New Testament wants us to be sure that poverty does not crush the poor, but the New Testament also wants to be sure that riches do not crush the wealthy. Either can happen. And so we have some really wonderful teachings in this scripture. Uh, and I want to just show you uh, some of these simple commands that are, that are listed. And we're going to list about four of them. The first is don't be haughty. If you, if you look at the, the screen carefully, uh, three of them are there and the fourth one will come up later. The first command that Paul gives us is don't be haughty. As for those who are rich, command them not to be haughty. To be haughty means to be high-minded, to think excessively of yourself. And that simply means having money or possessions does not make you smart, smarter than other people. It doesn't make you better than other people. It doesn't make you closer to God than other people. And it does not automatically make you more spiritual than other people. It just means you have more stuff. But it doesn't make you better. It would help us to remember that there are, there's a good kind of ambition in life and a bad kind of ambition in life. The bad kind of ambition in life means that we're always trying to get ahead to impress someone else or to feed our fragile egos. But a good ambition means that we want to become everything that God created us to be. We want to honor God, and we want to be a blessing to other people. Ambition's not wrong. It's just what it's focused on and what its purpose is all about. Don't be haughty. There's a second thing Paul says. Besides don't be haughty, trust God, not stuff. And that's verse 17 also. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, we can't set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. One of the subtle seductions of material comfort is that it gives us a false sense of security. It insulates us from life's uh, fragile nature. It, it deludes us into thinking that as things are now, they will always be. We get to thinking we're going to live forever this way. We get to thinking that we are in control of our lives, that we're making all the choices, calling all the shots. And, and life is not like that. Life is very fragile. Life can turn on a dime. Life can change oh so quickly. But you see, if you put your trust in things those things begin to insulate you and give you a false message of false security. I love one of the lines in Bill Hybel's book, Simplify. Uh, he said one day he was mowing his lawn and it dawned on him his lawn was, out, was going to outlive him. He said, I'm, I'm working my head off for this lawn. This lawn's going to outlive me. Long after I'm dead and gone, this lawn's still going to be here. You know, think about that. 
as you drive home today. All those big rocks that you see in Jefferson City that you drive by, those rocks are going to outlive us. Those beautiful rolling hills and a lot of the trees, they're going to outlive us. They're going to be here a lot longer than we are. This, this pride, this arrogance that, that, that says we can trust in things. I'll never forget years ago in another pastorate, a beautiful spring evening standing out in the yard with one of my church members. His wife had died not long before, and I was just following up to spend a little time with him. And we were standing in his yard on that beautiful spring evening, and he, he turned to me and he said, Doyle, I never knew that money was so useless. He said, I never knew that money was so useless. He said, it can't buy health, and it can't bring back loved ones who have gone on. He had a point. Paul says, be careful what you trust in. Trust God, not stuff. Because i tell you something. Stuff will let you down. God won't. Stuff will disappoint. God won't. So Paul moves on and he says uh, a third thing, and that's in verse 18. Consider wealth as a sacred trust, a huge responsibility. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and generous, and ready to share. Most of us don't consider ourselves wealthy, but I want to remind you, as I've used that phrase this morning, by, the, by global standards, most of us here today, even with whatever economic pressures we bring into the sanctuary, most of us are wealthy by global standards. We have an enormous responsibility to, to recognize that sacred trust and to use it wisely and to be generous. Now, I know you Spider-Man fans have heard the line, with great power comes great responsibility, many times. But I have news for you. Peter Parker's Uncle Ben did not come up with that line on his own. You know, people went away from that movie quoting that like, wow, that's profound. I never heard that before. Jesus said in Luke twelve forty eight, to whom much is given, much is required. Any of God's blessings are not just for ourselves. They are enormous responsibilities. And we have an enormous responsibility to be ready to share. And I, and I thought about this creative caring uh, just a little bit. And, and I think what Paul is talking about here is a, is a kind of creative caring. That doesn't just put something in the offering plate, but anticipates needs before we have to be asked for them. See, to use our material blessings to anticipate needs. To, it's fun to, to find a need before someone has to ask for it. Creative caring is also about using our material blessings to build relationships. And creative caring is about growing God's kingdom. Paul says to be generous and to be creative, to, to, to find ways to help, to find ways to make a difference. I love the story uh, that Branch Rickey told about his own father. Branch Rickey, you remember, was the uh, 
uh, a baseball executive who led the way of in- racially integrating Major League Baseball, the movie 42, Harrison Ford played the role of Branch Rickey. He was an amazing individual. And don't you weigh the, uh, love the way I worked baseball into a, uh, a sermon with just weeks to go before spring training. Uh, Branch Rickey had a lot of energy and a lot of vision as a man, but he got it from his father. He said when his dad was in his 80s, when Branch, Rich- Branch Rickey's dad was in his 80s, that dad was out planting peach trees. And as he was planting the peach trees, he said to his son, I don't care who gets to pick the fruit. I'm going to live every day as if I'm going to live forever. And shortly after that, he died. He never got to pick any of the fruit. But what a vision of creative caring that says, it's not about me. What a blessing and a gift that God has entrusted me with some peach trees that I can plant something in this life and that God will either on earth or in heaven give me a ringside seat so I can watch the blessing of that grow. It's an amazing thing. So it's time for a gut check. Are you using the material blessings you have to anticipate needs, to build relationships, and to grow God's kingdom. It's worth thinking about. Here's the fourth thing in our, in our outline and thinking about what Paul said. He first said, don't be haughty. He said, trust God, not stuff. Consider wealth as a sacred trust. And here's the last one, redefine success. Redefine success. In verse 19, he says, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The old King James, I think, says life that is life indeed. I like that, life that is life indeed. Living for the right stuff, redefining success, storing up for themselves treasures on a good foundation that has a future so that they can take hold of life that's really life. Do you know that in 2012 there was a, an international survey taken of what was called the happiness scale? And they found a way to rate the happiness of each nation or as many nations as they could test. Do you know that on that global happiness scale, the United States with all of our wealth, with all of our power, with all of our gadgets and our gizmos and our electronic devices, the United States ranked 32nd in global happiness. That means 31 nations on the earth are aggregately happier than Americans. And the top seven countries on that happiness scale were Latin American countries that are supposed to be noted for poverty and deprivation. Think about it. Think about it. At the end of verse 17, Paul had said, God gives us everything for our enjoyment. And then in this verse 19, he says, so that we may take hold of that which is really life. See, my question for us this morning is, I know you have a biological life. You're here breathing, right? I know you have a biological life, but do you have a spiritual life? Are you really alive? See, Jesus came to give us that second birth so that we can have a spiritual life. And when the biological life 
gets in sync with the spiritual life, then we begin to live with purpose. Jesus came so that we might have life that is life indeed. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I know you're alive biologically, but are you alive spiritually? So that that biological life can impact to the maximum for your blessing and God's glory. The great Russian writer Tolstoy once told a beautiful story. Perhaps you remember it. He told a story about a man who was granted land, a very precious commodity. He said, you will own the land, all the land that you can walk around in one day from sunup to sundown. But you have to close the circle. You have to walk the circumference. And as fast and as long and as much as you can walk, that land will be yours. The man took the challenge. He began to walk and stride with confidence. And the farther he walked, the larger he made that circumference because he thought, boy, think of all the land that will be mine. Think of how rich I'll be. Think about how people will look at me. And he just kept making it larger and larger. With every stride, with every mile, he kept thinking about all he would possess And then he began to realize that maybe he'd cut it just a little too big and he walked a little faster and walked a little faster. And finally, just as he came at sunset to close that circle, he fell over dead. You know what Tolstoy is trying to tell us, right? And I guess that story brings new meaning to the phrase going around in circles. Because some of us are going in circles that just don't matter. They just don't matter. In fact, they more than don't matter. They hurt us and other people. God, who has given us all things to enjoy, put your confidence in that which has a hope and a future so that you may take hold of life that is really life. Here's the takeaway. Simple challenge. Go home today and figure out what useless, selfish circle you can stop walking. It's selfish and it's useless. Stop walking it. And what new creative thing you can do to invest in eternity. Just two challenges. Be willing to give up some useless, selfish circle to let God help you find one creative thing you can do to invest in eternity.